Uh, we are in John 7 this week. John 7, uh, verse 25 to 52. We're finishing the second half of John 7. We started this chapter last week with this question as the title, what do you think of Jesus? And so this is part two of that question. One of the things that we discovered last week is that every one of us judge people. Not a shocking revelation. We do it subconsciously, we do it consciously. The question actually is not should we judge people or why we judge people. The question is whether we're judging with right judgments. Isn't that what Jesus said in verse 24? You can just look at it yourself. He tells his hearers, don't judge by appearances. Instead, judge with right judgment. In other words, make your conclusions, your judgments based on truth, not opinion, based on facts, not rumor. Judge off evidence, not convenience, personal convenience. Judge with right judgment. And one of the primary points that we drew out of the text last week, it, it actually had two facets to it. On the one side, we discovered that the judgments you and I make about Jesus says more about you than it does about him. And secondly, the judgment that you make about Jesus, whether he is the Christ or not, determines the ultimate judgment that he's going to make about you. But the statement that Jesus makes about judgments forces us to ask ourselves and others this question, on what basis do we judge Jesus? Is it based on facts or is it on fiction? Is it based on personal experience or gossip? In other words, before you make your conclusion about Jesus, consider your evidence. Consider the formulas that you use to draw conclusions about Jesus. This is what we talked about last week. And the reason John wants us to think about this is because inevitably, we will have to decide about Jesus. And he wants us to make the most informed decision possible because it is the most important decision you and I will ever make in our lives. And it's that decision that I want to talk to you about today. The point I want to make is this from our passage, and I think you're going to see it pretty clearly. Jesus is everything you've been looking for, so you should come to him. It's as simple as that. And this section in John 7, we're going to be reading it again. It starts in verse 25. It goes to the end of the chapter. But the, the focal point of this passage is actually found in the middle, verses 37 to 39. And we're going to spend some time there in the beginning. And then afterward, we'll look at the surrounding context and see how it shines light on that middle section. So let's go ahead and read those first or those verses in the middle, starting in verse 37 and go to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. L last week, this whole, this whole chapter actually began with this conversation about this festival of booths, this 
one of the more, most popular feasts in Israel at this time, and Jesus was in attendance at this feast. It, this was the feast that his brothers, if you were here last week or if you've read the passage, wanted him to go to Jerusalem at this feast and declare himself publicly to be the Messiah. But Jesus refused and instead reminded them that his hour had not yet come. The hour, of course, that he was referring to was the hour of his crucifixion. And we also talked about how important this feast was, this festival of booths. This was the festival that celebrated the harvest season. And every year, according to God's command, they would gather together for a week and celebrate God's provision. But as a part of this celebration, they would remember how God provided for their ancestors when they fled Egypt and wandered in the desert. And one of the things that they would remember specifically about that was how God provided water from a rock and satisfied the thirst of his people. This was that feast where John tells us, after all, a whole week of celebrating this, a whole week of thinking about how God provided for his people and, and how he provided water from a, a rock and basically preserved his people's life. At the end of that feast, at the great day, the climactic moment of the feast, he says that Jesus stands up and makes this incredible invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Of course, Jesus is not talking about literal water, and neither was he talking about literal thirst for water, but the spiritual thirst that exists inside the soul of every single human being, a thirst that we all have, and yet we all often seek it in other places other than in the source of life. Even God's people, even you and me, at times turn to substances, experiences, and human relationships to satisfy this deep longing of the soul and forget that God alone satisfies the human heart. Jeremiah points this out so pointedly, and he's speaking on behalf of God. This is what he writes in Jeremiah 2. Speaking again on behalf of God, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What, a, what an image he paints for us here. As Jesus, think about this, as Jesus walked through this crowd for an entire week, as he taught in the temple, as he heard the rumors that were certainly going on about him, he must have been overwhelmed by the spiritual dehydration of his people. For years, they had forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. For generations, they had been drawing water from the wells of the world with objects that they in and of themselves were also broken. And, and so, in response to this situation, in the context of this feast, Jesus cries out, essentially saying, don't, don't do that anymore. Why are you wasting your time and your energy? It's like, I can just picture somebody with like a five-gallon bucket carrying water, and there's holes all in it, and it's just spilling out, and by the time they get it, it's like totally empty. That's what we do with our lives. And he cries out, don't do that anymore. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me 
and drank. As you think about that, the good news of this invitation is that the same invitation that went out to them then, 2,000 years ago, goes out still today to every single person everywhere. Those who hear these words, who read these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. Stop trying to satisfy the longing in your soul with the putrid waters of the world and trying to hold it in things that ultimately are empty in and of themselves. Instead, come to the fountain of living waters, that fount that never runs dry and always satisfies. The people in this, in this crowd hearing these words from Jesus, this is so simple, but yet also it's, they've heard it before actually. Uh, this invitation that Jesus gives echoes the previous invitations made by God in the Old Testament. One specifically is Isaiah 55 that says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And Zechariah He writes about this day when the Messiah would come. And this is how he describes it. He says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On the last day of the festival, with all this chaos going on in the background, Jesus stands up and he declares that day that you guys have been looking for, that day that you're celebrating here, here's the good news. That day has finally come. That day when all of your deepest longings can be satisfied and that deep thirst can be quenched. And what he sa- but what he says is this, you got to come. Come to me, anyone who thirsts and drink. And, and I want to highlight a couple more words in this statement. That first word I want to highlight is Anyone. This word in the Greek means literally anyone. It's not fancy. It's not a trick word. It means anyone. In other words, the invitation isn't for certain people. It's not for only those who are intelligent enough to get it or gullible enough to believe it. The invitation is to all who see themselves as needy sinners and Christ as a great Savior. The second word, so the the call goes to anyone, but the second word is come. Jesus uses this word to make it clear there is a step that you need to take to receive what he's offering to you, this salvation, and having your life fulfilled in him. You've got to come to Jesus. And our question should be this, what does that look like? What does it look like to come to Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 38, whoever believes in me. The first step in coming to, believe, to Jesus is believing in Jesus. Well, then we got to ask another question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What am I believing about him that I can receive this? Well, certainly what it means is that you believe in who he says he is, that he is God and that he alone is the way to eternal life. And then upon that belief, you actually act upon it. You commit your life every day to a life of dependence on him. That's why he goes on in verse 38 that 
after you come and you receive the living waters, that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is something that will just continue on and on. And John clarifies that what he's talking about was the internal presence of the Holy Spirit who would come and live inside every single believer after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and then ascension. If you go back and read the beginning part of the book of Acts, you'll see when the Holy Spirit comes. But from then on, whenever someone commits their life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside that person. This is what Jesus is inviting these people to do. Come to him, believe in him, and then receive from him the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he gives this image as a, a, a well of life that's going to be overflowing in you. And the reward of such faith is beyond value. The reward of such faith is beyond value. Think about what he's offering. Eternal life, eternal satisfaction. This is the greatest invitation anyone could ever receive. This offer is incredible, not just because of what he's offering, but who he's offering it to, us. People who, like I was describing earlier, we constantly go the other direction. We are constantly in rebellion against God, and yet he offers it to us. To this, we should probably wonder, who could say no to such an invitation? And tragically, many do. And it seems the people in this story ignored the invitation that Jesus was giving. Because before this, this great invitation, John tells us about what was going on in the crowds, the skepticism, the unbelief these people had. So let's go back and read that, starting in verse 25, the two paragraphs that are there. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus had said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Last week, we learned in the first half of this chapter that there was a lot of rumors going on about Jesus. And there were some who judged him to be a good man, and there were some who judged him to be a troublemaker. But whatever he was to some of these people, they were trying to gather as much information about Jesus as they're seeking to make their judgments of him. And one of the things that they knew was that the religious leaders, they hated him, and they wanted to kill him. 
But all that did was bring more confusion in this situation because they wondered, are we missing something here? Because we know those guys hate him, and yet they're letting him teach in the temple. The only logical conclusion is that they know something that we don't know, and they're withholding information from us. And so that seems like a contradiction, which then led them to speculation. Maybe they think he is the Christ. But then they think, well, no, he couldn't be the Christ because we know where this guy's from. And we know that when the Christ comes, we, we won't know where he is from, which was not true. There was a tradition about the Messiah not knowing where he came from, but this wasn't a biblical doctrine. Nevertheless, this is what they thought. They were operating off of bad information. Still, though, even with all this confusion and speculation, John says there were some of the people who believed, which it is possible that there were some people who believed genuinely in Jesus. But I think the more likely meaning of this phrase that some believed in him is that they believed in what they wanted to believe about Jesus. In other words, they believed in the Jesus that they thought he was, not in the Jesus that he truly was. And friends, that kind of faith is insufficient to save. It's insufficient to satisfy the soul. Because when you believe in a Jesus that he isn't really, then that Jesus is always going to let you down because you just made him up in your mind. But it's believing in the true Jesus. Still, there were people believing in him. And so the religious authorities, now they're like, whoa, we got to figure this out. There's some people that are being influenced by him. And they're devoting themselves to him, and and so they move quickly to stop it. In verse 32, we read, they sent the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus, which is a really simple task. Bunch of people, one guy, go arrest him. But when they got to him, they didn't arrest him, and we wonder why. I think John gives us three reasons. Two of them are here. One of them is in the next section But the first and the clearest reason why they don't arrest him, John states, because Jesus' hour had not yet come. Remember, John is writing this story years later, and he's reflecting back on it, going, man, what was going on? How, How come they couldn't do it? And his conclusion was, man, God must have been providentially protecting Jesus from anything that may get in the way of God's perfect plan for him, which was to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. His hour was coming, but it had not yet come, which is an encouragement to us to think about this, that our hour, whatever that is, whatever that means, is completely in God's control. And we don't have to fear of the things that happen to us or the things that people say about us, because God is perfectly in control, completely in control of the lives of his people. And we see that here with Jesus. And so mysteriously, God prevented Jesus from being arrested. But then John gives a second reason why is because when they got to Jesus, he told them and everyone there listening that soon he was going to leave and that no one else can follow him. And I think on hearing this, these guards must have thought, wow, that's great news. Uh, now I don't have to arrest him. This saves me the paperwork uh, that I'm going to have to do after arresting Jesus. He said he's going to leave and that none of them are going to be able to follow him. This is awesome news. And so they decide not to arrest him. But then they thought to themselves, well, wait a second, where's he going? (laughs) And, And wait, you're saying, even if I wanted to, I can't come? What is he talking about? 
Is he going to the Gentiles? Where is he going? And why can't anyone go with him? And so out of curiosity, they stayed and they listened to what Jesus had to say. And what do they hear him say? If anyone thirsts, even you, the temple guards, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As Jesus said these words, certainly it was speaking to their hearts in some way. And we're going to find out what the guards thought in a moment. But from the crowd that was there, there was a mixture of responses. Let's just read about it, verses 40 to 44. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come to Galilee? From Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Here's what they thought. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's the prophet. It's the Christ. It's a phony. They didn't know what it was. There was no consensus among the people as to who Jesus was. There was a division about him. And one of the things they said was, well, he's from Galilee. Isn't the Christ supposed to come from Bethlehem? And he's not from Bethlehem. It's like, dude, yes, he is. You guys aren't asking the right questions. You don't have the right information. And sadly, there's many people today who ignore the invitation of Christ to come to him because they've been given bad information about Jesus. And, and they, they've read a blog that someone wrote, and they're like, whoa, wow, that guy was convincing, and now they have all this bad information, and they can't see Jesus for who he truly is because of this bad information that they think is true, that they've been deceived into thinking is true. And, and just like today, the people in this story were divided over Jesus because of the bad information that they had, which leads <coughs> to the final section of this story. Let's read it together, starting in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we get the third reason why these officers didn't arrest Jesus, because after listening to him for a while, they were just genuinely impressed by Jesus. They were impressed by what he said, and they were impressed by the way he said it. We're, we're not told they believed in Jesus. All John suggests is that they were impressed by Jesus. And again, there's people like that today. They're impressed with Jesus. So they leave him alone. As the Doobie Brothers sang, right? Jesus is just all right with me. Um, thank you, Cody. The little chuckle. <clears throat> now you're going to be humming that tune in your head all day. 
And they're fine, they're fine with people who want to believe in Jesus because they're kind of impressed by him, but they're not persuaded to believe in him and devote their lives to him. This was the response of the officers. Man, he's an impressive figure, I'll tell you that. But perhaps the worst response from anyone in the story is from the ones that should be the most shocking, the ones who should have gotten it. And that's the irony, I think, of the story. The Pharisees, those who claim to be the most religious, the most pious, the most educated, the most knowledgeable, the ones whose heart should be seeking after God. And what we see from these men is, the best way to describe it is pure derangement. First, they rebuke the officers by saying to them, are you also deceived? Have any of us believed in him? And this crowd that is starting to follow him that now all of a sudden, I guess you guys are a part of, uh, they're all cursed by God. Wow. What a wild thing to say. That basically they're the only ones who are saved and in God's favor and all of these people, they're just idiots from the countryside. That's essentially what they're saying. These men were deranged. Their pride, their religious snobbery caused themselves, caused them to see themselves as infallible and immutably good, incapable of doing anything wrong, and everyone else was totally depraved and irredeemably bad and incapable of doing anything good or making a smart decision. That's how they viewed these people. And yet, when we read the story, we go, I, I think you guys are the ones who are kind of idiots, kind of deranged. The real derangement comes next, though, because they don't just judge this crowd or these officers. They snap at one of their own. In verse 50, we're reintroduced to Nicodemus, a well-respected leader from among their peer group. This was the guy who came to Jesus back in chapter 3, and he confessed to Jesus in that greeting, many of us, Jesus, we know you're from God because no one can do the things that you're doing if God is not with him. And, and he came genuinely wanting to know more about Jesus, but he came at night most likely because he feared this group of people. And we can see why in the story. Evidently, though, that encounter with Jesus back in chapter 3 made an impression on Nicodemus. And so in this moment, hearing all of this with a shred of courage and with an incredible amount of diplomacy, he doesn't come full out and endorse Jesus. He just asks a simple question. Hey, guys, isn't it in our law, you know, this law that you guys boast about, that someone is innocent until proven guilty? Isn't that what we believe? Isn't it in our law that someone has the right to a fair trial and the ability to defend themselves before we judge them a guilty person? In other words, we don't have enough information to judge this man as a criminal. And the reason why we don't have the information we need is because we haven't engaged in the appropriate process that we're supposed to go through. Now, you would think a guy with his status, with such logical reason, and you would think that in a society that's built on justice and godly ethics, that these men would just like snap out of their derangement and would pivot and seek an audience with Jesus and go, man, Nicodemus, thank you for, that's, that's smart. We, that's what we should do. But they don't do that. Instead, they mock Nicodemus. Are you also one of these country bumpkins? One of these losers from Galilee? 
Search for yourself. No prophet is foretold to come from Galilee. Now, keep in mind, in chapter 3, John says to Nicodemus, aren't you the teacher in Israel? This guy was the Bible answer man. And so these guys aren't just mocking him and his position or are you from Galilee? They're basically saying, I guess you don't know the Scriptures. I guess you're not as smart as you think you are or as we thought you were. So he knew the answer to their question, but they refused to answer his question. And instead, they just engage in character slander. And it was likely that in this moment, Nicodemus probably experienced a significant shift in his heart and in his mind about these people. Think about this. These were men that he knew for years. Let's just assume he's an older man and that he knew these people for 40 years. He studied the scriptures with them. He served alongside them at all of these religious festivals. They prayed together. They probably saw their kids grow up together and maybe some of their kids even got married. And suddenly these men that he thought he knew so well, these people that he thought were the godliest people that he knew, all of a sudden they became deranged lunatics bent on murdering an innocent man and abandoning basic justice. And I think it was in this moment when these men abandoned morality and justice that Nicodemus began to see something bigger is going on here with this guy Jesus. And by the end, I think we may find out what decision Nicodemus ends up making. But I think this moment was a significant shift. Do I want to stay a part of this peer group and go down this level of derangement? Or is there something about this Jesus guy? But you know what? That's what Jesus does to people. Um, this invitation to come to Jesus, we see Jesus and we think, man, what a wonderful invitation. It's so kind and accepting and just, in, it's incredible. But then you see some and their reaction to Jesus, they actually become deranged. Um, someone you could even know for years, they can convince you that they love you and that they even love God, but then Jesus really shows up and they lose their minds. And you're like, wow, did I even know this person? But in the center of this story, this story of curiosity and confusion, this story of division and derangement, is this glorious invitation from Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The invitation is so clear. Come to Jesus. He's everything you want. He's everything that you need. But, it, but even as I say that, I, I want to be clear. What Jesus offers to you is incredible. I, I've heard preaching that says, says things like this. Uh, come to Jesus. He'll give you purpose. He'll give you joy. He'll give you peace. He'll give you all of these things. And all of that's true, but they forget the other part. Uh, because though when you come to Jesus, you'll gain everything that you actually are looking for, you will likely have to give up everything that you've been living for. All those broken cisterns that we keep in our metaphorical pantry, that w those wells that we keep going to and drawing from, a part of going to him is saying, I'm not going to go to these anymore. And, and those are hard to give up because it's all, of, all we've known. But I promise you, nothing in this life 
all of those cisterns and all of those broken wells, nothing in this life is worth holding on to if it stops you from coming to Jesus. For the Christian in the room, let me just encourage you that you have an eternal well to draw from in Christ. The world, even after we come to Christ, it's funny how we still get drawn into the temptations that the world offers us. Now, you have Christ, but you can still have even more joy if you come over here and experience this or get engaged in that. Don't get distracted by the world's temptations. Yes, there's joy to be found in the world, but it is not the source of life or satisfaction apart from Christ. We have an eternal well that we can draw from. But for those who are maybe on the fence or skeptical or maybe find yourself relating to some of the people in this crowd, that invitation is still to you. And my encouragement is this, don't delay in answering the invitation. Come to Jesus because he's everything you need. And whatever you've been looking, going to lately, it's not gonna satisfy. Why don't we pray and we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and we are so humbled by your love and the invitation that you give to any and all to come into a relationship with you and experience what our hearts and our souls long to experience, that thing that we were made for, which is to be in right relationship with you and to draw all of our life from you. God, I pray that for those of us who have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we will continue to draw from the wells of eternal life that are in Christ, that never run dry and always satisfy. Help us to avoid the temptations that are in the world. But God, I pray for those who maybe are in this room or online or, or just the people that we know that we've been talking to about a relationship with Christ, I pray, God, that soon they would do what this passage says, come to Christ and receive life and joy and satisfaction and run from those things that promise that but don't deliver. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.